Welcome to the Walter Paisley Movie House, where we celebrate the little engines that could not. I'm here today with my engineer, Jason Harris. Our music, as always, is by the wonderful Jonathan Harmon. Today's episode is brought to you by Aunt Martha's Home C-Section Kit. Aunt Martha, we really bring out the kid in you. Today is part two of our talk with a true legend, Fred Olin Ray. If you listened to part one already, you know he can tell a story and part two is more of the same, including tales of his wrestling days, Gunnar Hansen, and why Heather Lagenkamp accidentally scared the living shit out of him. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Dig in, kids. I imagine that's probably an issue with someone as prolific as you, uh, where you're working with different production companies all the time, and as things age and their popularity grows, and especially in cult film, being able to get those things out into the world probably becomes more difficult because of that licensing. Yeah, because a lot of films, people just assume that if you made the film, that you own the film. That's, <laughs> that's you know, people keep going, oh, when are you going to bring our response out? I said, I don't even know who controls that. I, I've, I've got, you know, I picked up my paycheck, they cleared, and on, on I go. Mm-hmm. There are films that we do own. There are films that we do own. We do own certain movies and, uh, and we do bring them out on Blu-ray and re- remaster them. And, and um, I can't do it all at once because I don't, my DVD Blu-ray company is kind of a boutique thing. I do it as a hobby. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we'll, re- retro media. Yeah. We'll plug we'll in there for you. A couple titles and those titles need to return their revenue before we can then take and invest again to go in other films. But We've, we've transferred Teenage Exorcist and Angel Eyes and Little Devils and, you know, stuff like that. We've got HD Masters on most of these things. Uh, we just did Haunting Fear and Evil Spawn. Oh, cool. Um, which uh, Haunting Fear came back to us from trauma after 30 years. <laughs> that movie and Demon Sword fell back to us after 30 years. And see, wow. I wouldn't let them have access to the negative either because they didn't treat us right. They, they didn't report and they didn't pay us. And for, it was been dead silence all these years. So I said, uh, it'd be a cold day in hell that I would ever let them access the 35 millimeter stuff. So all these people are dealing with masters that are 30 year old one inch tapes. Right. You know, so <laughs> good luck, buddy. <laughs> so when, I've got a couple questions about your filmmaking process. Uh, one is when you're, and this this actually comes from my producer here, Jason Harris, when you're working on a project, you're going in, you've got the seed of the idea in there. Are you thinking about budget right away? Or are you saying, I'm going to write this down, then we'll worry about getting money for it? I think you should, re- I, you need to kind of rephrase that question. I'm not sure I understand it. Um, basically, when you're going in on a project, uh, let's say it's one you're writing, are you as, as you're writing it, are you saying to yourself, oh, this is going to cost a lot. I can't do this. I need to cut back on this or move forward. Or do you just not think about budget or anything? You just want to get the, the word out first and then decide what's going to stay and go, what you can work around? No, I don't have any pet projects. I only, I only get involved in things that I want to make. So I definitely think of the budget and the shooting days and how many characters there are, how many sets and locations there would be. Um, but we don't do a lot of independent stuff anymore because we can't get the money back. You know, we did Super Shark mm-hmm. and Super Shark did about as well as any shark movie is going to do. It was a sci-fi channel premiere Saturday night, 9 p.m. And every 
country out there has their own version of the sci-fi channel and all of them took it. If the US sci-fi channel takes your movie, all the rest of them, the British sci-fi channel, the German sci-fi channel, we sold that as much as, and it took us five years to break even. And I said to the distributor, I said, it took me five years to get to zero where I would have been if I'd never made this film. <laughs> and I, th I thought, why am I doing this? You know, why am I doing this? Now, ultimately, Super Shark made about a 25% profit, and it's still generating income today. Mm -hmm. It still generates money uh, to this day. But then we turned around and we made After Midnight, which was another one of those funky films where some of our guys were making some bikini movies for Cinemax, and they needed a TV station, but they only needed a half a day. And I said, well, listen, like, go ahead and let's go ahead and you get the TV station and I'll come in and shoot something for half a day. So I started developing a story that would be filmed on the off days of the bikini movies that were being made at the time. And um, I made mine sag and had Tawny Katane and Richard Grieco and some good people in it. And I made it Screen Actors Guild and Directors Guild for 60 grand all in. Wow which is about as low as you can go. And it's about six day movie. And I'm proud of it. I love After Midnight. It took me three years to get the 60 grand back. And it's only running maybe 20% profit. And right. you kind of say to yourself, what is, what is the purpose when you can just go and work for someone else and pick up your paycheck and the distribution is their problem, you know? Yeah. So that's kind of, I'm, that's the kind of place I'm in right now is, I want to work for and make movies for Lifetime and Oprah Winfrey and uh, Ion for Christmas movies. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I want to, I just want to work for other people, although I cannot get past the desire to make my own films because you have total control, total mm -hmm. casting, you know, you, the creative effort, you get final cut, you can, it's your music, you do everything your way. And sometimes it's not a bad, it's not a bad thing to be able to have total creative control. But you have to sometimes give up shooting days and budgets and casting money, you know? Because if you'd made After Midnight for 150,000, it probably wouldn't have made a dime more than the $60,000 version did. Right. So, you know, it's, it's, it's testy, but I, I like working for other people. Yeah, I, I would, I, I get that. <laughs> actually yeah. but i understand also the the desire for that kind of control and as the landscape with film has changed so much um i i mean cinema the pandemic did not help but it was kind of on the way out anyway the the big movie houses anyway and i kind of think good riddance i kind of prefer the smaller indies um but then with streaming and you're doing a lot of TV work now, so this probably isn't valid to what you're doing today, but as you were doing a lot more of the straight to video work, um, ratings probably weren't even a concern at that point. You weren't worrying about a theatrical release. So it, when you're making those straight to video films, do you just go hog wild, say, let's put it all on the screen? No, no, no I just, you know, even, even once, once theatricals dried up here, it didn't necessarily dry up overseas. Uh, Inner Sanctum played in theaters all around the world and people would send me photographs of people lined up to see it. And um, a lot of things that were straight to video here were playing theatrically. 
in other countries. And uh, we got into a situation which, we, which was stunned me. We went to India uh, in the late 90s to make a Don the Dragon Wilson movie for Roger. And when we were there, we took Tawny McClure with us, who was in a lot of our shows. And Tawny had been in a movie called Chrome Hearts. It was a women's prison movie. And when we got off the plane in India, we were driving to the hotel, there was a gigantic billboard for Chrome Hearts, Tawny looking out through the bars. And we looked at that and we went, what the hell? And, and then she couldn't leave the hotel. They followed her everywhere she went. And you realize that just because something went straight to video here. So we always framed our films for 185. All of our movies were framed to, to play in a theater because you just, you just didn't know. Yeah. You just didn't know. That's fascinating. Wow. Just to, to think of Chrome Hearts having a big billboard alone. It's <laughs> pretty fascinating. I know. <laughs> so you, at, at one point, you reached out to Ed Wood and commissioned him to write a screenplay for you. And unfortunately, he passed before he finished. And I know it's been talked about probably ad nauseum and you're probably tired of talking about it but i'd be just remiss if i didn't talk about just ed wood himself what was he like as a person when you were dealing with him i i just found him to be very outgoing he was very happy very very excitable person and i was trying i was very young and i was trying to convince people to finance me and i knew that i had no game. So I would try to find people that I might could associate myself in my shows that if you weren't interested in giving me money, you know, it wasn't just me, you know, I would, I would have somebody tagging along who had had credits and stuff. Mm -hmm. And at that time, Plan 9 and these films weren't considered to be the worst movies of all time. And Edward wasn't famous for being a bad filmmaker. And uh, I was just trying to connect myself with people who might helped me get these films made. And I remember uh, while I was talking to him, he told me a story, which again, I'm always skeptical of people's stories. He said there was a show called The Liars Club on TV. Mm -hmm. JP Morgan was. Yep. And he said that recently on The Liars Club, they showed like a car hubcap or something and asked oh. people what it was. And they said it was a, someone said it was a, flying saucer from plan nine from outer space. And Ed said, and that turned out to be true. It was. <laughs> and I don't know that I ever believe that. <laughs> I've, I've heard that story. And it's, again, it's only from Ed's lips. So. <laughs> yeah. I wish we had, uh, I wish we had gotten through that script. I mean, it was, he only wanted $500 for the job. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> So that was, of course, later in his life, um, he was, he kind of just moved on to adult films at that point. Um, I, I, for one, never thought he was a bad filmmaker. I thought he was a low budget filmmaker. And there's a big difference to me uh, between, I still think Glenn and Glenda, Glenn or Glenda is one of the more progressive and brilliant films from the fifties. Far worse films made by people. Out oh, there. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And you, through Retromedia, you've released some of his stuff, The Violent Years, which is another favorite of mine that he penned. He didn't direct, but it's a great, trashy 50s film. Just delightful. How did you start coming up to 
did you guys just buy the rights to be able to distribute that? Did somebody approach you about that? A few years ago, someone called us and, and they wanted to sell us a movie that Ed Wood had rewritten called Married Too Young. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, his name's not on the film, blah, blah, blah. They said, look here, here's a letter from the producer and it outlines what Ed Wood did on this movie. And I looked at it and it, it was what they said it was. And they wanted to sell the negative, the negative, the prints, the trailers, whatever they had, and a huge box. It must weigh 30 pounds of original paperwork. The actor's time cards are in that box. And it was called Married Too Young. It was made by Headliner Productions who had made, the, I think, The Violent Years and The Sinister mm -hmm. Urge. And they wanted $3,000 and they would transfer the copyright to us. So Holy it was cow. still violent years is not copyrighted. Right. So you don't have to acquire the rights. But Mary Too Young was still copyrighted. So we bought the copyright and the negatives and everything for three grand. And I haven't made three grand off of that <laughs> yet, but I haven't tried. I put it out on VHS just so people could see it mm -hmm. in a really nice, and I just licensed it to Riff Tracks which is an offshoot, I think, of Mystery Science Theater. Yeah. And so they're going to do what they're going to do with it. So, you know, people can see it. It's, uh, I, I just admire so much uh, the, that, that kind of stuff, especially the violent years, because it's one of those that's kind of a hidden gem that people don't know about. Uh, and you, you, when you released um, that film, you put the violent years on with it? Yeah, I put it on just yeah. so uh, more attractive packaging. <laughs> You yeah. Know, so, so since it was free to use, you know, we thought, well, why not add it on? And then, because it was made by the same company mm -hmm. and I think some of the same people. So it had, um, it, it, it was a good thing to put on, I believe. Yeah, I agree. I think more people should know about that film. Right. <laughs> I, I touched on your wrestling career and your friendship with Terry Funk. How, how did that come about? Did you just decide one day I need to do this? No, I was, uh, I was boxing. Mm -hmm. I was uh, boxing as a hobby. It's not, not any intention of anything else. And uh, I damaged my rotator cuff. And I was on a movie with Rick Drazen, who I think you mentioned earlier. Yes. And I said to Rick, I said, I, I was really bummed out because I couldn't do what I wanted to do. And I was, I was, if you know, Benny, the jet, I was boxing out of his gym. And Rick said, Freddie goes, we're, we're doing pro wrestling. He goes, why don't you train with us? If you're not really ready to step out of the ring. And I said, okay, let me try it. So I, I started working out with everybody and that was pretty groovy. And uh, Rick got me some matches and then, Somebody in Alabama, Dixie Championship Wrestling, asked me if I wanted to work in uh, Alabama some, because Dave Friedman was there. And I had made a documentary. I'd gone down there and made a documentary, which is on Amazon Prime, called Alabama Outlaws. And if you haven't seen it, you should see it. So the guys- I, I actually have it in my queue. Okay. So. <laughs> the guys who, who ran that promotion said, why don't you come down here, we'll do some matches. And so I did, and I liked it. And I wrestled, you know, Bob Armstrong and 
and I had Terry Funk was in a movie. <laughs> and so Terry and I started wrestling as a tag team. And we did a bunch of matches. And then eventually I wanted to know what it was like to wrestle against Terry. So we did a three-way hardcore match. Uh, so I could just, I just wanted to get the spinning toehold. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, wanted that, I wanted that in my wheelhouse. And then I wrestled, eventually as the years went by, I wrestled Abdullah the Butcher, which was almost. You said that was a pretty memorable bout. Yeah, it was almost the last thing I did. That was just out of control. I mean, that went out through the double doors into a parking lot onto some cars. I thought that thing would never end. <laughs> and then I finally, I went to Atlanta on a show for TNA, Total Impact. And I wrestled some guy who was supposedly a Russian. And they told this guy, you're gonna go under, Fred's gonna go over. And if you, I don't know if you're a wrestling fan, but Larry Zabisco was on the show. Yeah, yeah. And Daphne and Crowbar, whatever, um, and uh, one, one man gang or somebody like that. And this Russian guy was like, well, I'm so much bigger than him. How can I go under? But that's the way it goes. If you're supposed to go under, you go under. Mm -hmm. And this guy was being managed by Iron Sheik. And this guy did everything he could to humiliate me in the ring. Everything. I mean, and like I trained under Mondo Guerrero, who was the real deal, Eddie Guerrero's brother. Mm -hmm. And I could wrestle. I was an amateur wrestler. And I just, and I, I it was so disrespectful, amateurish out of this guy. I had two choices, get out of the ring and walk to the dressing room or stick with the match. And I finally had had enough because you generally have to go till a referee gives you a sign that it's time to take it home. Mm -hmm. And this guy just wouldn't give me anything. And he was, he was really trying to humiliate me, I really think. And so finally this guy came at me and I dropped toehold at his face right into the turnbuckle. And that woke him up. <laughs> and I, I pinned him and it was over. I mean, even the Sheik was outside yelling at this guy during the match. The Sheik was in his own broken English. Right. Kept yelling, give him the comeback. Give him the comeback. Because that's matches are ebbs and flows. And this guy wouldn't give me anything. Yeah. He wouldn't give me anything. And that was a huge crowd. And I felt so disrespected that I said, I, I just said, I'm, I don't think I'm, I'm going to do this anymore. So my wife didn't like it. And I had two children. I had a little baby that wasn't even a year old. And I said, you know what? This left such a bad taste in my mouth. I did one more thing. I went out one time. Or I did two more things. But I went out one time to do a promo with Roddy Piper for his book. Mm -hmm. And it was an in-ring promo. And I had made a fake book called Freddie Valentine's Guide to Washed Up Old Wrestlers. <laughs> and I was going to go out and say, you know, I've written my own book, blah, 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 blah. And then Roddy was supposed to see, look at the book and then hit me in the head, of course, and down I would go. And then Roddy would promote his, his book. And I got there and Roddy doesn't show up. Roddy doesn't show up. Finally, the promoter says, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'll get in the ring and I'll do it. And so the promoter gets in there and he hits me in the head with the book. And I thought, this is lame. And then the next day, I'm supposed to do something else with Roddy and he shows up. And I'm kind of like, what happened? Oh, I wasn't feeling well. I said, well, fucker, it's your book. 
<laughs> it's your book. I'm out there taking a shot to the head. And you gotta, you know, at that level, you would actually take the book to the head, just like the chair. You, sure. take, you take the chair to the head and you hope for the best. Right. <laughs> and um, and I thought this is ridiculous. Anyway, I did that and then I came back one time and I managed a tag team against another tag team that Rick Drazen was the manager of. Okay. And Rick wanted to mix it up, but he didn't want to mix it up with a young guy. He didn't want to mix it up with somebody who had something to prove. So he asked me if I would manage these guys for one night only. And I said, you know, my kids had never seen me. And they were maybe six years old or seven at the time. So I said I would do it so my kids could come and be in the audience and see it. And they're just like, great, dad. Yeah, dad, thanks, dad. You know, they just, they could nothing, nothing interests these kids. Same thing a Honky Tonk Man. I go to Halloween Havoc in San Jose and they said, Fred, you're going to work Honky Tonk Man, who was their headliner. And I said, why me? They said, he doesn't want one of those kids who wants to show off what they can do. He, they want somebody old school who can do what he wants to do. Mm -hmm. I said, I'm your guy. And he came up to me and he said, take a look here. And I looked out the curtain way down. It was a San Jose Civic Auditorium, whatever it was. He said, see those guys flipping around down there? I said, yeah. He goes, we ain't doing none of that. <laughs> he, goes, he goes, I sing for two minutes and I wrestle for six. He goes, he goes, I want you to take the upper hand and just kick my ass. And then in the last two minutes, give me the comeback. I'll give you the shake, rattle, and roll. Mm -hmm. And we'll, we'll both walk out of this feeling great. And I said, okay. And, I, and he said, please choke me with the tape off your wrist. I said, okay. <laughs> I went down there and I did it. And that was the easiest uh, payday we ever had. We just, <laughs> he sang for two. And at least he didn't hit me with a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> and he gave me this um, shake, rattle, and roll, which is an old school neck breaker. And you didn't see it too much anymore. I liked the neck breaker that I picked up from Terry, where you stand the guy, you stand him straight up, and then you just go out to your back, and he goes out to your back, and it looks pretty good. Mm -hmm. He was still swinging you oh. around, and it, it, it pulled my groin. I walked funny for about three weeks oh. after that. But you know what? <laughs> it is it is what it was, you know? <laughs> But overall, though, it sounds like it was probably a fun experience for you, aside from the uh, the injuries. <laughs> yeah, except for the surgeries and all that sort of stuff. Um, right. It was I had a great time because I would do things that nobody else would do. See, I wasn't going to flip off the top rope. I wasn't going to do any of that stuff. I there's a kid. He's on AEW now named Mikey Henderson. Mikey Henderson threw me over the top turnbuckle in a battle royal. And that's a long way down if you don't get a piece of the rope. Yeah. And I did a drop kick through the ropes one time and didn't get a piece of the ropes and I went out and hit my head. Oh. And I remember Kim, my wife at the time, she was like ringside. She kind of hovered around in a tight outfit. And she ran over and she said, she's looking down at me. She says, are you okay? And there was two of her. I'm looking up. <laughs> oh, shit. And I was supposed to get back up and get on the ring apron and take a sunset flip and then go through a table back down to the floor again and i said get out of the way i said i got to get back up to the ring and she, oh, yeah. she got out of the way and i went back up there and i got the uh, over the top rope 
the sunset flip through the table right back down to the same floor. And I had a concussion that lasted for weeks. I would almost black out if I bent over to tie my shoes. Oh, shit. And I, I went into a match with a guy named the Bulldog, Pitbull, a guy named Pitbull. And I said to the guy, because I was supposed to go over, I said, if I pass out, pin me, just pin me. I said, because I'm not sure that how things are going to go tonight. And it's so funny because I tried to put a little tape together for my kids years later. And I was looking at the, I had some tape of the pit bull and I never gave anybody a backdrop suplex. I never did. You know, where you pick them up on your shoulder and you go backwards. Go backward with them. Yeah. Yeah. I never did it. Never took one. And I never did one. And I'm looking at this tape with this pit bull and there I give him a backdrop suplex. I went, fuck me. <laughs> what was I thinking? I said, I don't have any, I had no memory. I had wow. no memory of this match whatsoever. And I was doing shit that I had no clue what, and later I, I guess I must've just completely been concussed during the whole Holy thing. cow. And you know, I got, a, I got a stinger. I, if you know what a stinger is. Hmm. By a guy who was, the worst thing in the world is to wrestle a kid who's an amateur because they're green and they'll hurt. And there's a great little move off of the corner rope, but what requires is that the guy, as you put him down, he makes a table. You know, you have, he, you're in a headlock, and, but he's gotta go on his knees and on his hand and leave about a two foot spot between his stomach and the mat. There's okay. an open spot. And this guy gave me this move and instead of tabling out, he flattened out and it drove my head straight into the mat from, oh. from the top turnbuckle. And it paralyzed me. It paralyzed this whole side of my body. I couldn't move my arm, I couldn't move my leg. And I pulled myself up on the corner of the rope and I didn't want to say anything because my wife was there. Yeah. And I was truly petrified. I would imagine. I mean, it took about 20 minutes, the feeling came back. But then years later, this hand stopped moving. And this thumb stopped moving, these fingers stopped moving, and it turned out that I had a severe spinal cord damage. And they had to go in there and operate on me and space out my neck, and they've got uh, three plates and six screws holding this all together. And it never gave me the use of my hand back, which is why I, people say, oh, can you type out answers for an interview? I say, no, I can't. I do vocal stuff and I can type a little bit because this one finger, this finger and this thumb, they're numb, but they still, they still work. The rest of these don't do anything. But I still think it came from that stinger years earlier, you know? And I went ahead, I went and wrestled the next night. I wrestled Bob Armstrong for the DCW heavyweight championship belt. Another thing, you know, here's Bob Armstrong and he's like one of my idols. So I can't beat him cleanly. Mm -hmm. So I was at a period in time where I dyed my hair. I had a white streak in my hair. And yeah. if you must my hair up, I would stop. And this girl would spray my hair and back to perfect again. And I sprayed Bob in the eyes with the hairspray and then hit him with the can and pinned him. And requiring a police escort out of the building that night to my car. Some kids still managed to get through and hit me in the face with a cow pie. from. Shit. Thank God it was dry, but it got me right in the Still. face. And then Bob Armstrong comes up to me and he goes, I don't see any reason 
why either one of us needs to leave our feet till the finish. I said, okay, Bob. As soon as he grabbed my wrist, I went over and down. <laughs> I thought, I'm not going through this whole match without hitting the mat. And he bounced me off of this ring rope and he come at you with the palm of his hand right into your chest. He hit me so hard that night, I'm laying in bed at the Ramada Inn and, and his handprint is in my chest. And it was raised between his fingers. I just laid there at night, just feeling Bob Armstrong's hand <laughs> on my chest. And I remember because I never watched Seinfeld, but my, my wife was into it. And that was the night of the finale. That was the Seinfeld finale. It was the first episode I ever saw. I was laying in Ramada Inn wondering how long it would take for the handprint to disappear from my chest. I guess he, show, he showed me. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> he said, stay on your feet. He did. Must have, must have pissed him off. <laughs> uh, I'm going to jump back a little bit because I have to, I watched it again last night, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, which is my first touchstone with you. Uh, teenage Dylan was, uh, oh, beautiful. You're wearing the shirt. Um, that uh, I read about it in Fangoria. And it was the first time I'd read your name. I was just kind of getting into horror. So I, uh, my little local video store, would they would have a certain movies that they literally just got for me. Um, I'd go in and be like, Troma has a new release, get it. Uh, they'd get some Hammer films for me when I'd bring it up because it was such a new thing, uh, VHS. So Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, they got for me. And I, ever since then, I've had a love affair with that movie. But not least of which, you got Gunnar Hansen. And how did that come about? Gunnar Hansen was a poet and he, he was a permanent guest at someone's house on Mount Desert Island, Maine. He'd been in a movie for Don Jackson called The Demon Lover. Mm -hmm. And Don had put me in touch with Gunnar years earlier on projects. And we were trying to get a project off the ground. It never happened, but we were in contact and when, they, when I pitched this Chainsaw Hookers thing to this distributor, they said, oh, it'd be great if you could get the guy from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I said, I, I can do it. I, can, I think I can do it. They said, well, he'd be great if he'd wear this mask. I said, no, that we're not doing. So I, I called Gunner, who didn't know anything about horror conventions, wasn't a fan, never been to convention in his life. And I said, do you want to come to Hollywood? We're going to make this movie, it's a comedy. I'll fly you out here and you work a couple days, whatever it was. And I paid this amount of money. And he said, well, that sounds pretty cool. He goes, go to Hollywood, appear in a movie, get back on a plane, come back home. I said, yeah. And he said, great. So he came and he stayed at my house and we shot, we shot him on Friday night. Cause that was another movie made around another film. It was a moon and Scorpio mm -hmm. that was made on the weekend ahead and the weekend after the three or four days worth of pickup scenes that need to be done for that movie. So we shot Gunner and uh, Saturday we shot him at Movie Tech Studios, which is where the tomb and some of Armed Response and my other films have been made, Commando Squad, things like that. And I called Eric Caden, who ran Hollywood Book and Poster. And I said, Eric, I said, I got Gunner Hansen here. Would you like to meet him? Eric said, I, I absolutely would. So Eric, because that wasn't far from Movie Tech Studios, which was in Hollywood. 
Eric came down and met Gunner. It was at, at night on Saturday night. And Gunner got his contact and said, do you want to do a horror convention? You can sign autographs and they'll pay you some money. And Gunner's like, well, I, you didn't know what to do. And he said, yeah, he would do it. So Gunner went and did this convention that Eric Caden set him up for. And then Gunner never stopped doing conventions. <laughs> <laughs> From that moment on, he was one of those convention whores that would show up everywhere. <laughs> and um, I was very happy for him. He was a very gentle person. He was a very creative person. Um, and uh, we'd been, like I said, we'd just been friends for years prior to, prior to this. And it was before he ever discovered there was an interest in him. You know, he was just mm -hmm. delighted to come out and do that part. So <laughs> it is a, he's, it, that, that whole movie is fascinating to me. You've kind of got the film noir aspect of the narration of the detective going through, which is some of the cleverest dialogue, well, it's not dialogue, but some of the cleverest narration definitely that I've, I've heard in a film. And for a movie like that, you know, I think um, I watched it with a first time viewer and she didn't know what to expect going on other than Dylan showing me another low budget movie. Okay. Uh, but she even remarked on, you know, this is very clever dialogue as we were going through it's, it. And you've got such a way with words, especially with your comedies. Has that always been in you or did it just kind of start to develop as you started writing screenplays? Oh, I definitely think we got better with our screenplays as we went on. Uh, I mean, when I mean, you look at something like Hollywood Chainsaw, you, you, I think you can see though that it's not, it's not just another low budget film. It's a low, low budget exploitation movie made by fairly smart people. Absolutely. You know? and, and, and I used to say this to people, you know, cause they'd say, well, you know, why, why? Cause we had a great run with these stupid bikini movies on Cinemax. I stopped them after making them myself after a while, but we kept producing them because they were very profitable. And I said, what you don't understand is that you don't, this isn't some director of photography who's just starting the business. This is a director of photography who shoots for Orson Welles, right? This isn't a director who's trying to break in the business by showing a bunch of girls tits. This is a director who's coming off a million dollar theatrical film who's lo lowering themselves down mm -hmm. to make these kind of films. And I was in the phase right there where I was reading a lot of Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler. And I always liked, I always liked uh, pulps, old pulp mm -hmm. magazines. And um, that was part, that was part and parcel of the whole thing. There's a, there's, there's a little thing in there that I said, I was a bit ahead of my time. The, the detective asks himself, why, how did they ever get to this spot? And he said, Perhaps we've let our religious freedoms go a bit too far or our immigration laws are a bit too lax. And, and I thought, I saw that 20 some years later and I thought, you know what? I wonder what we were thinking at that point. But it was, I, a, it was literally at that point last night, Julie just turns to me and goes, what does that mean? Well, you know, I always said that Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers was a, a, a message. It was a message film, and it was. When my brother and I first moved to California, we drove there in a car. We had less than $1,000 cash between the two of us. Everything we owned in the world fit inside that car. I just paid $50,000 in moving fees to get myself from <laughs> Florida. But my brother and I stayed. Uh, Don Jackson hooked us up with a, a motel in Hollywood, Hollywood Boulevard, and my brother and I had never been west of the Mississippi. We were walking up and down Hollywood Boulevard, just 
innocent. And there were these newspapers, they were free. And the newspapers were nothing more than just a gigantic cesspool of ads for girls who were escorts, who would come over and massage this, this and this and this and this. And we were just stunned. And I said to my brother, I said, who in their right mind would ever call one of these girls to come to their house? I said, you have no idea who's going to show up. You're not going to tell your neighbor she's coming over. You're not going to tell any of your friends. It could be some kind of chainsaw wielding maniac shows up. You don't know. And you're going to go out of your way to keep this, you know, assignation a, a secret. I said, you'd be nuts to, to let some girl like that show up at your house. And that was the basis of Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. It was just literally watch, watch out for who you take your clothes off with. <laughs> that may be some kind of chainsaw wielding nutcase. <laughs> and we used the same thing drove uh, Beverly Hills Vamp. Beverly Hills Vamp was the same. Yeah. was the same idea. And I, I still feel the same way. <laughs> <laughs> and if I saved one person's life, <laughs> it was all, it was all worth it. <laughs> That's, and I, one thing I had forgotten and it, because it had been years since I'd seen it. So watching it last night, you had the the blades on the chainsaws in a lot of scenes. Yeah, uh, the the chains on there. Did that get a little scary for you at times? Uh, especially I'm, the chainsaw dance. I was always worried about Linnea losing a limb. <laughs> I was uh, absolutely terrified uh, by those chainsaws. I don't think in the dance there were any blades on there. We only put the blades on them when there was going to be a shot where it was unmistakable. Close-ups and like yeah. There's a shot coming down in front of Jay's face and the chainsaw stops, the blade stops. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we used a frayed hemp rope and the blade of the, the saw uh, vibrated it so much that the little fibers that were frayed just made a blur. Okay. Uh, obviously, yeah, we didn't want, it was, it was nerve wracking. I did the same sort of thing in deep space where a girl trips and the chainsaw slides across the floor and it comes to a stop right in front of Charlie Napier's face. Yeah. And we had to have the real blade in that, but we put a big piece of plexiglass between him and the blade. Although I'm not sure that was the smartest thing. We could <laughs> if it had it, I don't know, but yeah, no, those chainsaws really, really made me nervous. Absolutely. And nobody got, nobody. Yeah. Got, I actually, it was looking into that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You gotta be careful. Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that could have happened on these films, I guess, that didn't. Some things that did. I got I I almost I, I was so I you know talking about your heart leaps. I saw Heather Langenkamp. I don't know you know who that is. Oh yeah. Heather, there was a a building and she was supposed to run across the building and trip and fall over the, the building or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, not over the building, but they built a scaffold outside the building, the real building, and there was a pad on it. And the stunt person ran over there and, and turned and they wobbled and wobbled. And then they sort of fell, fell down before they fell over or, or, or they went over and then they were supposed to be hanging from the edge. I can't remember, but we did the stunt. And then Heather was supposed to run over. And I said, Heather, I said, when you run over the edge of the building, just stop cold and sit down, just run over the edge of the building and sit, just sit, sit yourself down and that's a cut. She ran over there and she tripped and she fell and she went over the top of this two-story building. And I saw her disappear over the side and I went, oh my God. And I rushed over there and looked down and she was laying on the pad. Thank God the scaffold was still there. Holy she was laying shit. On the pad. 
And I thought, don't, when I, when I tell you, <sighs> very scary. I would, oh my God. Extremely, extremely scary. And um, I thank God. That's all I can say. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I'll have uh, to watch that movie again to see what the hell was supposed to be going on there. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to, you've been so generous with your time. I've just got a few more questions for you. These are coming from uh, some outside uh, folks. Uh, another one from our producer, Jason Harris. Uh, as far as conventions go, what's your most memorable experience for you at a convention? I don't do a lot of them. Mm-hmm. If you look, if you look back, I did Comic Con for a couple of years there just recently because I'm part of some shows and stuff. You know, I won an Emmy last year yep. and uh, was nominated the year before, and um, I'll know in a day or two if we're nominated again. So I would go to Comic Con, which I had always been against. I never wanted to go, but they said they'd make it so easy for me that I said, "Yeah, what the hell, right?" Uh, I've done some chillers and I used to do Fanex. Fanex is in Baltimore were, were my favorite because I don't sell things every once in a while. Cause I get in trouble at conventions uh, with the promoters sometimes um, because I, you know, I don't sign. I mean, I sign, but I don't charge to sign. Mm-hmm. Somebody comes up and they have something. And then you, I figured if you bought the DVD or you bought the poster, you've done your part. You know what I mean? I'll sign it. Uh, if you want to buy a Blu-ray or something, and I'm selling, if I'm selling them, but I normally don't sell things either. And I, I used to just kind of wander around the room, you know what I mean, looking mm-hmm. at things. And then finally, in Louisville, they said, "Fred, people are saying they they go to your table, and you're not there." I said, "Well, I'm always within 50 feet." So they said, "Well, how about we'll announce that you'll be at your table at three o'clock?" I said, "That's fantastic." So I did that, and I'll usually go to Chiller if Michelle or Brink or somebody who's close to me is, is that uh, I remember giving a lifetime achievement award to Ken Russell one year at something. And he was a rude asshole. Oh, if I can say that on your podcast. Absolutely. And I said, what a dick. You're actually not the first person to say he's a rude asshole, not on this podcast, but just in general. <laughs> I've heard stories. Well, I just, I, before we went out, I said, would you, how, do you want me to uh, 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 introduce you and mention a couple of your films or blah, 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 blah? He said, just give me the fucking thing. I said, okay, I'll just give it to you. And I, and I did. Um, and I, you know, I don't, I, you know, to be honest, I don't, I'm, you know, I don't have a lot of things. I, like I said, I went to um, Cinema Wasteland mm-hmm. in Ohio, which I enjoyed immensely. And I, you don't know what to do. And you're in California time, you know, 11 o'clock rolls around. It's 8 p.m. in California. So I got a drink and they said, hey, Fred, they got some beers in the parking lot. So I went out in the parking lot and there were a bunch of fans out there. I don't know, maybe 50, 60, 70. And I just had a bunch of beers with fans in the parking lot till about 2 a.m. And my son, Chris, was making battle dogs you know, for sci-fi in Buffalo. And him and some of them drove down. And he said, Dad, what were you doing in the parking lot at 2 a.m. in the morning? I heard you were, heard you were out there. I said, you know, I'm just having a cigar. And somebody, <laughs> you know, so I go, I go because like I go to Chiller just because I'm friends with Ted Boas. And we'll all go to dinner and I get to see people I know. And that's, that's usually my motivating factor to going to any convention 
is um, that there are friends of mine there mm-hmm. and there's some people I want to see or hang out with. Yeah. Cause I don't, like I said, I don't sell anything. I certainly don't go there to make money. I always tell people I still have a very viable career, you know, convention attendance is not my career, you know, I'm still working. Right. And you mentioned your son, Chris, and he's, he's gone into movie making. You guys have been working together more recently. I know on some of the made for TV movies you've been doing. Yeah. Is that something he just saw what you were doing and just wanted to follow in your footsteps? I know he's kind of going his own direction a little bit, but how did that come about? Chris worked for me as a teenager, but he wasn't that interested. He did it for money, just like my other two little monsters. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll PA and stuff just for the money. They don't care about filmmaking. And then Chris went in the Navy. And then when he got out of the Navy, he went to work for the Navy as a civilian. And then uh, Obama cut his job. They cut all these, uh, they made all these cuts in the military and Chris lost his job. So I reintroduced him to the film business and he started working for the asylum. Yeah. And uh, they, they uh, saw something in him that uh, they, they made him into a line producer. And um, so he became a line producer and then he wanted and in a director. And so I, I always, obviously everybody needs a line producer. So whenever Chris and I can work together and um, he can be my line producer, we do. We do it anytime we can. And, but he still directs on his own. He's got one on pay-per-view right now called Assault on VA 38 with Sean Michael Flannery, is that his name? Yeah, yeah. And Mark, Mark Dacascos and uh, Rob Van Dam's and that and um, a bunch of cool people. And that's out right now. And he's getting ready to make another film um, that has got a little bit of hype, but he was unhappy about the hype. So I'm not going to hype it. OK. <laughs> um, it's out there. Dread Central did something on it not too long ago. And uh, we've got one on Lifetime in June called The Killer in My Backyard. Yes which I just finished uh, two months ago. And I've got Dying for a Daughter, which is playing right now and still a wedding to die for. And, you know, but some of those Lifetime movies, I've tried to make some of them into sort of gothic, dark shadows type. If you see Deadly Shores, Deadly Shores is one of my favorites. It's a lighthouse, sort of a gothic romance, uh, William Castle-esque sort of women's thriller. But it's really, if you're a horror fan, it's good. And I did uh, Stage Fright, which is uh, also... Stage Fright's, stage Fright's a hell of a lot of fun. That's the opera, sort of an yeah. opera. And we found an old theater in, in northern New York or western New York from 1927. And we found these underground caverns with a stream running through them. It's really... Stage Fright and um, Deadly Shores are really pretty good little gothic, almost horror films. Uh, for a lifetime, you know, and of course yeah. I've done Oprah Winfrey Christmas movie. I've done a lot of Christmas movies, uh-huh. and I'm happy doing that. I'm I'm, I'm delighted to do them. I, that's the thing that I love most about you, and I'm not going to kiss your ass too much. But the thing that I love most about you is the fact that you just seem to love making movies. You just you go across genre, and you just like the the process of making films. Is that a correct assessment? It just seems like. I don't know. I don't know what else I would do. Um, You know, and people talk about this or that film or whatever. And I said, listen, it's like being a plumber. I said, some days the call is to go to Beverly Hills. Some days the call is to go to Van Nuys, but you're still a plumber. You're the same plumber 
working in Beverly Hills as you are when you're working in, in uh, Van Nuys. And I said, I'm just, I'm a filmmaker. I'm a filmmaker uh, for a living. You know, it's a, it's a career. And I could turn things down. There are things that I've passed on, but unless I find it morally objectionable and your paycheck is right and everything seems okay, I'm, you know, I'm a worker ant. I want to make films. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's fun. I mean, you know, even these Christmas movies you got, you get Aaron Gray in there, it had John yeah. Schneider, you get Chevy Chase, Morgan Fairchild, Howard Hessman, George Went from Cheers, yeah. you know, Kelly Long, George Hamilton. Um, you know, who doesn't want to show up to work on, on one of these? I had, I had um, Florence from the Jeffersons. Marla Gibbs. Oh, Marla Gibbs, yeah. yeah. I had uh, Tim Reed from WKRP in Cincinnati. And you, you go and you make these movies. I mean, why wouldn't you want to show up for work? Why wouldn't you? And, and you know what? There's nothing I can do that will pay you as much for 12 to 15 days worth of work as, as making a movie. It's the quickest paycheck I can even imagine. You know? That is fantastic. Why, would, why wouldn't you do it? <laughs> best industry advice I've heard in a long time. Jason just said that's the best industry advice he's heard in a long time. Well, when I first got in the business, I thought I, I was just going to make horror films. I was going to make horror and sci-fi. I immediately discovered that I'd be unemployed most of the time. You can't go in and say, I'm just going to make movies about zombies and vampires. I mean, it was almost instantly that I found, fell into armed response. And the first action film I ever made, 100 theater opening in New York City. I mean, billboards on Sunset Boulevard. You know, I was a kid. Mm-hmm. with a with a, a movie distributed by uh, a Columbia TriStar Pictures. So now all of a sudden it's like, oh, the, he's, he's, a, he's the action director. You'll make Cyclone, go make Commando Squad, you know? And just, and you make Inner Sanctum. People go, oh, that's the guy who made that, that, uh, that erotic thriller that, you know, was the number one most rented video in America, right? Makes the cover mm-hmm. of uh, Wall Street Journal. Now you're that guy. And, and then, then you make Invisible Mom, which was like the gold cassette winner, number one most rented video in America, Invisible Mom. Now you're the family movie guy. And you just, I don't care. I try to get a little bit of me into everything. And uh, I, I try to find a reason to get excited about every project, no matter how minor the project is. I try to find something in there that excites me and makes me want to go to work. And I see Dick Miller's picture up there. You know, Dick Miller was a good friend of mine. And I made a lot of movies with Dick Miller. I, I was going to bring that up because obviously I'm a fan. Uh, I mean, of course, there's that fantastic documentary about him. Uh, what, what was your experience with him? What, I mean, tell, tell us about Dick. I like Dick Miller. His wife was the head of the script supervisors union. Mm-hmm. And I always paid Dick well. I mean, he was kind of a cult figure, but I always paid him six figures um and i got him into armed response and he was great because he had that face a lot of people didn't know who he was but they that face and then we became friends so then we do evil tunes and mob boss and stuff like that and um dick 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 was very opinionated you know mm-hmm. he'd say he'd say ah you know this movie's crappy you know <laughs> when when are we going to get done with this? This this isn't going anywhere. And he was very he, he would right up front tell you uh, <laughs> that uh, he thought his role and uh, and he wanted to direct and he had a screenplay he'd written himself. It was about a guy who blacked out 
and murdered strippers. And it was an okay script. It was by the numbers, but he had to direct it himself. So I couldn't do, I couldn't get anything done with it because none of the people I worked with were interested in promoting Dick Miller's directing career. But I, I loved, I loved Dick. He was like a good luck charm, you know? Yeah. I, had Jonathan, I had Jonathan Hayes in a movie one time. What movie was that? He was in Invisible Mom 2, part two. And Diane McBain was in it, and I defy you to find her. I believe that Diane McBain's entire role was cut out of Invisible Mom 2, but she was in it. I'm going to revisit that movie because I've, I've seen it. Uh, well, Lori Nelson is in Mom, Can I Keep Her? The girl from Revenge of the Creature. Yes. Yeah, she's stroking yeah. a rabbit or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would grab these people. You know, you give me a chance. I'll put them in a movie. You know, That's they fantastic. Wanted, they wanted to work, and I could afford them. It's great for a film lover, just those little Easter eggs that show up. Just it, it rewards you as you're watching it. To, yeah. Oh, that's. <laughs> I think a lot of people go by when nobody knows they're in there at all. Now, I was like, yeah. I said, very disappointed. Diane Bain got, I think she got cut out of Invisible Mom, too. Okay. Roger always insisted that the movies be 93 minutes long. Yeah. And then as soon as he got them, he would pay some college kid to cut. 10 minutes out of your movie. <laughs> Every time they'd cut 10 minutes out and they'd have some kid who wasn't qualified to carry your luggage would go in there and do it. And recently I noticed though on Amazon Prime Cyber Zone that's on there is the original 93 minute cut, the one that was never released in America. Really? And the scene that they cut at the beginning, which was my favorite scene in the whole movie is back in the film again. But imagine seeing the film in the United States, and there it is, missing. The one scene in the whole film <laughs> that you really liked is gone. And now it's, it's back. So maybe Diane McBain is back in Invisible Mom too, perhaps. Okay. Well, Not that anyone's a Diane McBain fan, but. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna look. <laughs> oh, I used to do, I tried to get Jackie Joseph in a movie, but it came down to her or Jane Keen. And I said, I'd rather have Trixie from The Honeymooners. Yeah. So I, I get that. With, <laughs> I went with Jane Keene. <laughs> well, I've got I've got a question for you from my friend Kevin Cole, who is the founder of the Trash Cinema Collective down in Tallahassee, actually. And uh, he asks, "What can you tell me about the shit pickle incident from the commentary track of Latshaw's Jack O?" Well, I think somebody. You know, it's funny. There's a convention, and you're talking about conventions. There's one in Pensacola. I think it's next weekend. They had invited me as a guest and I accepted and I never heard from them again. <laughs> so I, won't, <laughs> I will not be there. But I think I might be at something called Sinister Nights in Miami because it's close enough for me to drive. I don't have to, I don't have to expend any effort. Uh, somebody said something about Steve's movie being a shit pickle. I can't remember. It was, <laughs> it was some review, but it bothered him and he never forgot it. And I was ribbing him a little bit in this, uh, in this, because I'm like that. It's me. I mean, I, that's what you get. And Steve got so mad, he got up and he walked out of the room. <laughs> and the door was locked because we were making a recording. So he locked himself out of the recording room. And then after a couple of beats, I hear the door rattling. He's trying to storm back in, but he can't. Because he's 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 stormed out and he didn't check to see if the button or whatever was turned on the doorknob and he got locked out of the 
of the thing. So that's, <laughs> that's Steve and I are Steve and I are friends, and and we we're still friends. We're still great friends. That's been I as soon as he I said didn't call it, I didn't call it that. Somebody else did that. I just <laughs> pointed it out. I think. <laughs> Kevin said that to me this morning and I'm like, well, I've got to watch that commentary track now. <laughs> you know, I've never, I've done so many commentary tracks, but I have never listened to one. I've never listened to a commentary track. And, but people tell me though, that they like mine. Um, and I don't know what it is about mine that they like, but um, they, they, I've never, I've never listened to anybody else's. I know I did a commentary track one time for Hatfields and McCoys. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite little movies that I did. And the producers who had never gone to Kentucky, they'd never left LA. They insisted on sitting with me during the commentary and being part of it, even though they weren't there. Mm -hmm. And it was because they didn't want me to reveal how many days it had been shot in or what the budget was. <laughs> I said, well, why don't you just tell me that? I mean, you know, you don't, I don't need watching. <laughs> But you know, I might have said if if it, sure. I'm, I'm pretty honest about stuff like that. I would say the reason I enjoy your commentary tracks is the reason I've been enjoying talking to you today. You're a raconteur. You just tell great stories in a very engaging way, and your commentary tracks reveal that as well. Uh, just I've listened to many of them. And I I've do always enjoy them. I wish I could take that. So uh, I have to watch myself because I will tell the truth even if it hurts sometimes and you know and it's never my intention to harm anybody who's worked for me sure um or or insult them or or make them feel bad so but sometimes it's funny I <laughs> you gotta have a sense of you people say stuff about me like you list off a bunch of credits of mine I think that aren't even mine they're not they're, it's a bunch of really? stuff it's not true Bill Graffay keeps passing around a story where he claims that I worked the cast and crew of the Telly Savalas movie for 24 hours. I said, Bill, I've never worked more than 14 hours, maybe 18 once in my entire life. I mean, I'm the first guy who wants to go home when I show up in the morning. And now you have to, it's a 12 hour day and you want to give the crew a half an hour to load up and get out. So we generally wrap at 11 and a half hours, 6.30, start at 7, 6.30. And Bill has been promoting for years that Telly Savalas said I worked him for 24 hours. That, that's nonsense. That's nonsense. I've never heard of such a thing. Really, truly. I'm not yeah. kidding. Yeah. No. And uh, there's a bunch of films that say I acted in them that I was never in. You know, I think I've, always... used, I've used a bunch of pseudonyms and I used Roger Collins from Dark Shadows on a couple of things. Turns out there's a real actor named Roger Collins. <laughs> so now I get credited for movies that that actor appeared in because I had I used a pseudonym that's his real name. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a movie called Save Me or Trust Me or something that Dee mm -hmm. Wallace says, I'm never in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the risk you take when you're when you're putting these together i go through and i'm like i some of these i don't know if it's true or not but what the hell i'm throwing it in oh, i didn't make you know? mania that's johnny legend sleaze mania ran a trailer for one of my movies inside their movie i didn't like that, they, yeah they, they try to co co credit me with directing death farm massacre because i directed the scenes of john carradine that are in there but i never put right. my name on that film i don't take any credit for directing demented death farm massacre right. you know, <laughs> you know I, I, I wish i'd worked that much 
So in your, just off the top of your head, how many movies do you think you have made? I don't know. I stopped counting yep. after a certain point. I got a cake on my 50th. But you got to take into account that I have directed bits and pieces of other people's movies. Right. Tons of them. Where I've gone in for a day. There's one its name escapes me. But I, I know that Lizette Anthony was in it and Harry Hamlin. Maybe, maybe that was called Save Me. And uh, I think the director was Alan Roberts. Mm -hmm. But I got a call. Could you come down and direct this car chase? We don't have time to do it. And I paid this amount of money, whatever it was. I said, okay. So I went down and did the car chase. And then they said, oh, well, we need this guy killing this guy in a parking garage. I said, well, wait a minute. you got a director. Why do you want? I said, I don't feel right about doing this. And I'd have to see the movie to see whether I did the car parking garage scene. Or not. <laughs> I can't remember. But I took over for John Saxon uh, on Death House. And I took over for, uh, I don't want to name him, but there was a movie called Ice Spiders, mm -hmm. sci-fi channel. And I went in and I took over 25% and directed 25% of that. And I directed a bunch of um, Jersey Shore Shark Attack, just stuff that got spilled over that just the director was doing fine, but the movie was too damned ambitious for mm -hmm. the 15 days that we had to make it. And it's like, you know, you, I think I got a second unit director credit, but I actually did principal. Second unit directors don't normally work with principal actors. That's, but I did. I did all the principal photography with that kid from the Jersey Shore, my Vinny. Yeah. I, all I did were whole sequences. Second units usually drive-bys and helicopters landing. I did whole sequences. You know where actors would be in the movie and never work with anyone but me. Wow! And um, and I've done a lot of I directed bits of parts of Rollerblade for Don Jackson. Mm -hmm. I mean I haven't, I haven't even kept track of um, of these things and probably I should have. <laughs> <laughs> How are you going to write the memoir? <laughs> We're doing it. We're doing it. You know. Um, I had this surgery on my spinal cord mm -hmm. and I never really talk about it. And I certainly never talked about it on Facebook because I don't need anybody's fake well wishes and hugs and prayers. You don't want the thoughts and prayers? No, I don't, but it, <laughs> but it, it killed me. They uh, accidentally cut an artery. They didn't see it and they sewed me up. And in the recovery room, I slowly realized I was having a hard time breathing and I kept telling them I'm having a hard time breathing and it got, got worse and worse and they ignored me saying this is normal this is normal and I finally said I think I need an airway I said I think I'm I'm suffocating and a black curtain just fell and that was it I flatlined in the emergent in the uh, recovery room and I woke up on a table silver table and they're all looking at me and they're asking me if I can move my feet or my hands and I'm moving around they ask me if I know who I am and then I passed out again and I woke up tied to a bed with an incubator and there were two girls in my room and they were talking about how it was Christmas Eve and I went oh my god how long have I been here and I was in a coma for a long time and I, I recovered, obviously. I didn't, my hand is still pretty useless. But when I got out, I realized, had I not been in that recovery room, I would be a goner. 
So I, I, I'd flatline there. And if they, if there would be no one there to resuscitate me, I would, that would be it. So I said to Steve Latchaw, I said, I'm beyond the point of being able to write my story, which people have asked about a lot. I said, do you want to do it with me? We'll do it like Peter Bogdanovich did his Orson Welles book, which would be a big interview book. Yeah. Steve and I did eight sessions. We've had them transcribed. We're in the editing phase. We're in an editing phase now. So it's like Lawrence of Arabia or War and Peace. It's huge. So we do, we do need to bring it down. But uh, I, have, I have made some efforts to, to do it just, just so you know, so know what tomorrow is going to be, right? Sure. Yeah, so. Wow, that is, I have no idea. What a, just a harrowing experience. Very happy you're still here, yes. Well, they, they, they kept, they keep you doped up because you're tied up to a bed with this thing down you, so you can't talk. Yeah. You can't and I think they keep you, they, they, from the moment I woke up, they kept you going, putting you back under, I think just to keep you from going crazy. And um, Chris brought in a laptop with four Hammer Dracula films on it. And he put it there and, and I could just sort of reach the button with my finger, mm -hmm. and, but I couldn't stay awake long enough. I would see the opening credits, then I would wake up and Dracula would be disintegrating. Then <laughs> the darkness would come on. I'm watching the beginning, then next thing you know, he's, he's going under the ice. And it was just a crazy, the whole, the whole experience in the hospital yeah. Trying to get to the point where they would let me leave uh, was uh, an experience all of its own. So, man. Anyway, if anybody listens to this, that's probably the first time they'll ever hear that because I, like I said, I do not, I don't really speak about this. this wow. Is nobody, it's nobody's business, really. I appreciate you sharing it. And if, uh, if, you know, a few days from now you're reflecting on it and say, you know, I don't want that out there, just let me know. Let I'll me tell you something. I'm looking up here and seeing that we've been at this for almost two hours. If anybody gets to this point, they deserve to hear that story. It's gonna, it's definitely gonna, it's gonna be a two-parter. If you can hang into that point, you've done it. You've made it. This is definitely gonna be a two-parter. This is, I, I mean, I could go on for another five hours, but you have been more than generous with your time. I really appreciate you taking the time out for this. I know how busy you are. I mean, your your credits alone show that. Uh, so uh, what do you have to promote? I know you've got the movie coming out in June. Um, well, send me, uh, send me a link with this done. I'll share it on my Facebook page. Uh, we finally do have a, a website. We, we haven't had a website for a long time because you don't really need one. Uh, but it's retromediadvd.com. And it really kind of just guides you into what's new coming out from Retromedia toward uh, makeflix.com, which is uh, somebody we've kind of partnered up with. We still sell on Amazon and stuff, but we're such a nothing company that we don't have the people to do a lot of internet sales. We have to have Amazon or someone else doing for us. Uh, like I said, uh, Killer in My Backyard uh, next month. Okay. I'm not sure when Sinister Nights is in Miami, but I'm meeting them tomorrow. So I'm assuming that I'll probably appear there. Okay. And um, I don't really promote anything, to be honest yeah. with you. I just, <laughs> I just trundle along and do my next job and uh, check check out Chris's movie, Assault on V838 or 33. Definitely. Kill me, I don't know the title. <laughs> on Direct TV right now. So is Dying for a Daughter. If you see me doing stand-up comedy somewhere, come and say hi. 
I do stand up too. I do stand up comedy. I'm looking for a new place here now that I'm in Florida. I'm uh, supposed to hook up with Will Schreiner here soon. Will Schreiner, holy cow. That's I hope he'll shoot me in the right direction, you know. Is there any video of you doing stand up out there? Actually, there is, but it's not public because I've always respected that the comedy clubs need to make their money. So it's like, why give it away? It's not going to, yeah. it's not, not going to help. It's not going to help the comedy club. Yeah. I always run into that issue where people film me and post it. And I'm like, dude, I was working out a bit. I don't want that going out there. I'm afraid to try them because if you, if you bomb, you're not going to come back. So I, I, you, you want to stick with what's tried and true. <laughs> people go, oh, go to an open mic. I don't do open mics. I did a couple and I don't agree with them. I don't approve of them. You know, because nobody's there to be entertained. They're all there waiting for their turn. For their spot, yeah. And yeah, I so said, if I, if I canceled all my material based on the number of laughs, I would have thrown my entire act away after the one open mic I did. Yeah. Some people even looking at their phones. They're just waiting for their name to be called. I said, ah, screw that. I said, I'm never going to perform again unless people have paid to see me. Right. Nice. Yeah. Ever the mercenary. Do you, uh, do you promote that? I haven't seen that come up on your social media. So is that something you might promote? Uh, I do it on my personal Facebook page and I, I have done it on Instagram and my other, but I booked a show and then because of a fight that broke out at the venue the night before the show, the next night was canceled. And then I had to scramble and try to undo all the promo I did for that show. And then they said, Oh, do you want to book this other night? I said, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Not while this situation exists. Because I said, do you know what, how hard it is to try to reach everybody that you reached who are planning to come to tell them not to come now? I said, right. I, I said that's not the business I'm in. So I didn't, I didn't book another show there. And then I've, I've been in the process of moving to Florida mm -hmm. for the last couple months. And we're still in here. There's no posters on the wall. We haven't hung our posters up yet. And we're still living out of a bunch of boxes and stuff. Mm -hmm. So. Once I get calmed down, I did a re-edit of my stand-up recently, and I put it on uh, Vimeo, and I'm going to send that out, see if I can book some stuff here. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, great. Well, we'll keep our ears out for that, definitely. Well, thank you, and let me know how it goes. Take Fred, care. thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Wow, what a legend. As you guys heard, he's got no intention of stopping anytime soon, and I, for one, am really glad to hear that. Be sure to follow Fred at Retro Media and on his Facebook page, on which he's really become a pretty prolific uh, poster of late. He's really done a good job on there. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I'm really looking forward to his memoir. I'll probably be first in line for that. Next week, we will be releasing the first of our very special episodes, featuring the highlights of our weekend at the Indianapolis Days of the Dead convention. Yes, conventions are back. It's going to feature some interviews with some of the independent filmmakers I met there. Great people who are pu putting out some a lot of fun films. Uh, also, some of the visual artists who were vendors there. Uh, also, a special bonus interview. I'm very happy about this. Big Braden himself. That's right, the Greasy Stranglers Big Braden. A friend of the Walter Paisley Movie House, and I'm happy to say a friend to me as well, Sky Elabar. Had a great little talk with him. I'm only going to tease a little bit of it uh, with that podcast because we're going to do a fuller interview down the road here. Uh, he's a fascinating guy. Uh, got stories about playing CBGB with his band. Uh, just, that's all I'm going to say. It's going to be a great, great interview with him. 
Uh, then the week after that, get ready for part one of our interview with cult legend Bill Rabane, the director of the giant spider invasion, Twister's Revenge, Monster Agogo, and the tiny, tiny Tim as a clown vehicle, Blood Harvest. Until then, be well, stay safe, but most importantly, tip your servers well, because at the Walter Paisley Movie House, we don't piss on hospitality. See you later, kids.